Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. For full exposure, listen with headphones. Last night I saw a flying object that couldn't have possibly been from this planet. But I can't say a word. I'm muzzled by army brass. I can't even admit I saw the thing. On the last episode of Ephemeral, we explored the illustrious career of filmmaker Edward D. Wood Jr. We looked at Wood's most famous films, including Plan 9 from Outer Space and Bride of the Monster. And we debated the inherent quality of Wood's output and how much that even matters. Here, our producer Trevor Young picks up the story. Edward filmed Plan 9 from Outer Space in 1956, but it wouldn't premiere until three years later in 1959. In the meantime, Wood directed my personal favorite of his, Night of the Ghouls. Through my powers of the supernatural, I, and I alone, can bring him to this room tonight. From that place in the deep blackness of death, from which no visitor is to return, where the sun is seen to rise, the sun is seen to set, where the gracious moon comes from the east in its long journey across the night sky to the west. Wingate Foster, through the powers of Dr. Acula, will again be permitted to walk. Here's Bill Shute, author and professor of English at San Antonio College. In some ways, the companion piece to Plan 9, Night of the Ghouls, is even more surreal, though it's not as well known because it did not get a theatrical release. Uh, It wasn't released until the VHS era in the 1980s. When my children were young, I had the VHS tape of that, and they requested to watch it over and over again when they were like 10 years old. And I think my children have watched it 10 or 15 times. The story behind that film's delayed release is an interesting one. Apparently, Ed Wood had failed to pay the laboratory that developed the negatives for the film. So the laboratory stowed the film away until Ed Wood paid the fees, but he never did. So it sat in a warehouse for 25 years until superfan Wade Williams paid the bill himself and released the movie on VHS tape in 1984. Despite the issues with that film, Ed Wood carried on and kept writing scripts. In 1960, Wood wrote and directed The Sinister Urge. Well, what's happened now? The police raided Jaffe's studio. Not again. They picked up Lila, Sally, Carol, Jaffe, the whole crowd. Who took them? Our old friend, Lieutenant Matt Carson. Oh boy, something's going to have to be done about him. As we move into the 1960s, he did direct The Sinister Urge, which is a kind of um, sex crime-oriented film. It's really an early kind of slasher film in some ways, although you could only go so far with that in 1962. But it also was a sex exploitation film in that it dealt with, as it was called by the police in the film, the dirty picture racket, the smut picture racket. I read in the morning paper where the police department assigned a special detail to clear up this silly, dirty picture business. That was the last, I guess we'd say, mainstream film directed by Ed Wood. This became a big turning point in Wood's career. He began to write more exploitation material in the form of both screenplays and novels. As softcore sex films came in in the 60s, he wrote and later directed films of that sort. Orgy of the Dead, based on one of his novels, was uh, a classic, although he did not direct that. He wrote it, he was on the set, and it has a very Edward ambiance to it. Ah, the curiosity of you. On the road to ruin, may it ever be so adventurous. I'm so frightened. Well, we certainly can't stay here. Come on. Where? In there. It frightens me. Silly, there's nothing in there to be afraid of. Then, then what's that music? That's what I want to find out. And as the 60s moved on, he moved into the sex film and also sex writing field. 
He, in a way, was a pioneer of that in that he moved into the hardcore 8mm loops. People who are historians of West Coast porn have pointed out that one of the series that he was involved with, the Swedish erotica, was a very pioneering series, and Ed directed a number of those loops. Eventually, Wood moved away from directing movies and focused on his adult content. Ed wrote a lot of sex-oriented novels and short stories and also non-fiction prose. And that's how he paid the bills. There are at least 75, if not 100, novels that he wrote, often under pseudonyms, but he kept a record of those works and was proud of those works and gave signed copies of them to friends. And they're quite an interesting field for people to read. I don't know that people want to read 75 of them, but you could easily acquire a handful of them. There's some collections of the short stories that are available. And all of the qualities that people like about his films really are there in his writings also. As Ed Wood moved away from filmmaking throughout the 60s and 70s, his personal life also started to change. Here's family friend Bob Blackburn, who knew Kathy Wood, Ed's widow. They were both uh, alcoholics, and I'm not afraid to, to say that because it's honest truth. And even when I knew her, she was still drinking. There's people and there's stories that the two of them were kind of like the battling Bickersons, like when they were both in their cups and a little bit drunk, that things would fly and it could get physical at times. Bob tells us that Wood's shift into pornography was a double-edged sword. He was good at it, and there was money there. But it was also something that Wood was forced into, largely by his inability to make it in Hollywood as a traditional filmmaker. A lot of people don't realize that Ed Wood was a porn pioneer working for Bernie Bloom uh, for Pendulum Publishing in starting like in 1968-69. And then his heyday in the early 70s, he was writing the short stories and he was writing the articles. He was also writing some of the editorials. He was writing a lot of the descriptions for the pictorial layouts, you know, for the girls. You know, they had to have a little story or fantasy for the guys, presumably, who were buying the magazines. And the drinking increased. So they, because I include Kathy in this, they were kind of in a downward spiral. These years were tough on the woods. Ed was struggling to find work, and money was inconsistent. They moved around a lot. They actually bought a house out in North Hollywood. And once the house was repossessed and, and their cars got repossessed just because they couldn't make the bills, they had to put a lot of their furniture and, and personal artifacts in storage. They couldn't pay that. That got sold off. So a lot of Ed's memorabilia got sold off. Went to a collector, a couple of collectors, and it actually ended up being bought about uh, seven or eight years ago by the stepnephew of Paul Marco, a guy named Jason Insulaco, who lives here in L.A., and he bought what we call the trunk, which had all of Ed's scrapbooks and bunch of memorabilia. I was tempted to bid on it myself. It went for about $13,000 plus the fees, plus the shipping, so. But they kind of were always one step ahead of the landlord. When they moved into their apartment right up here on Yucca Street, where they lived for the last four or five years of Ed's life, by December of 1978, they were in arrears of six months worth of rent. And on the morning of December 7th, they were forcibly evicted from their apartment, thrown out on the street, all their possessions, like file cabinets that Ed had. I've heard, you know, rumors of a, a Bela Lugosi biography that he was working on called Lugosi Postmortem. That could have been something in there. All they had was the clothes on their back and a little tiny leather suitcase that held some personal papers, unfortunately not that manuscript, but they did have the manuscript for Hollywood Rat Race, as well as a shooting script for Ed's pride and joy called I Woke Up Early the Day I Died, which was a film, which actually ended up getting made in the late 1990s, but it never technically released. 
A friend of theirs, an actor friend of theirs named Peter Coe, said he would come get them and brought them back to his apartment up in North Hollywood. And three days later on Sunday, uh, the 10th, Ed was in a bedroom feeling bad. There's, a, I guess, a TV with a football game on. And Kathy and Peter and a couple other friends were in the living room having drinks. And one of their friends went in the bedroom that Ed was sleeping in or laying in uh, with the game on. And uh, he had passed away, so she came out and said, hey, I think Eddie's died. They all went in there to look, and in fact he was. And Kathy said his eyes were open as if he'd seen death. Edward D. Wood Jr. died on December 10th, 1978. And it seemed as though the sad story of Ed Wood had come to a close. But just a couple years later, Wood's story would reach millions of new people, and he would finally get the fame he desired. For most of his life, Wood's work was somewhat underground or obscure. But after his death, he started to gain a little more popularity. Some of this stuff was starting to get known a little bit among collectors, you know, hardcore cult movie film buffs. Videotapes were starting to come in a little bit, maybe just a hair later in the early 80s. But there was an underground collector circuit that would, you know, trade, here's Robot Monster, here I'll trade you two Ed Wood films for, you know, this screaming she creature or whatever. But then came Ed Wood's big break. In 1980, the Medved brothers published their book, The Golden Turkey Awards, naming Ed Wood the worst director and his film, Plan 9 from Outer Space, the worst movie of all time. That one book started that whole ball rolling. I don't think we'd be sitting here talking right now if that book hadn't come out, because I don't think Ed ever would have gotten the notoriety that he has, because for one, the... uh, Tim Burton film would never have gotten made without that book. The fame of that Medved Brothers book, like the influence of that cannot be underestimated. I would say millions of people watched Plan 9 because of that. And that means that it was kind of cemented into the canon in a way that few other movies have been. That was writer Catherine Coldiron, who we talked to last episode. Intentional or not, Ed Wood became a household name almost overnight. Suddenly, Ed Wood films were everywhere. Movie theaters, video stores, on TV. Here's Bill Shute. The kind of uh, worst film of all time, Golden Turkey thing, I was never a fan of that. I never liked the condescension in that. But I have a feeling that Ed Wood was around long enough that he had the attitude that if they spell the name right, Any publicity is good publicity. He certainly was a man who had a sense of humor. Am I happy that that happened? Well, if it makes the films well-known, I'm very happy that it happened. And I'm glad that he has been rediscovered. The fact that Ed Wood is famous for making what's, you know, been called the worst movie of all time, I don't know if that's the legacy that he would have chosen, but I do think that he must be very happy that people have watched his movie in such enormous droves. Kathy always used to say, Eddie would have loved the attention. He would have been out there. He would have been appearing at everything and talking, and he would have, it would have given him a new hope and a new life. As Bill tells us, the revival was good timing, because the 80s saw a huge boom in cult films and physical media collectors. You had fanzines and magazines like Psychotronic, Video Watchdog, The Phantom of the Movies, and many of the other folks of that sort. You had VHS, you had uh, Rhino Video. With catalogs in hand, I wander through these sacred decades. Be it rock and roll, country, rhythm and blues, comedy, children's fair, or the unravished home video. Oh, fair rhino. Oh, sweet rhino. Oh, virtuous rhino. You had the early days of uh, Something Weird video, and you had people like Elvira with her television show. Hello, darling. It's me, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, that video cutie who makes the boys stand up and salute Well, it's 
it's time to reach into the old vault for today's video treasure. <laughs> Boy, talk about scraping the bottom of the barrel. Ooh, smells like a really ripe one. Let's see, it's killers from space. Oh yeah, right. Well, I'll just stick this where the sun don't shine. No, not there, in the VCR. I'm sorry that Ed Wood passed away when he did. Of course, I'm sorry he passed away at all, but had he lived into the 1980s, I have no doubt that he would have thrived in the straight-to-video market of the 1980s. He certainly knew how to make a slasher film, the sinister urge from the early 60s, with a little more explicit violence and sex and shot in color, would have been a perfect low-budget slasher film. And some of the straight-to-video things were made for $5,000 uh, during that period. So I think that there are people who admired Ed Wood, who put a, could have perhaps gotten him set up in that world. And then he could have gotten into the world of the conventions, the way that someone like Herschel Gordon Lewis and Ray Dennis Steckler, these people were able to benefit from the renewed interest in their work. Ed Wood could have had a successful second career during the 80s and 90s had he lived. And who knows what kind of works he could have created there. So I think that's a horrible lost uh, opportunity because of his passing at a relatively young age. And we can just uh, dream about the things he could have created uh, had he lived longer. And it didn't stop there. Here's Bob Blackburn again. And all of a sudden, people started discovering a few of his other films, like Glenn or Glenda or Bride of the Monster. And they started having the college screenings like the UCLA Film School had a screening like in 81 or 82 you know when you're in college I, I used to see the Marx Brothers films because that was like in the late 60s early 70s like they were screening Duck Soup and Horse Feathers and all because you'd get high and you'd go watch these funny Marx Brothers movies so they were doing the same thing with this on college campuses get high and watch Ed Wood movies which I'm sure led to the so bad it's good and so bad it's hilarious moments because you're stoned and you're watching Plan 9 and it doesn't make sense. And you're going, well, wait a minute. Is that a shower curtain? What, you know, what, what, it's daytime, it's nighttime, it's daytime, it's nighttime. Are those hubcaps? What the heck is that? But I think some people started taking Ed's work a little bit more seriously than that. They started discovering things in it that they went, well, wait a minute. There's more here than what appears on the screen. The more they found out about Ed the deeper the films got, and it just kind of snowballed a little bit for people that took a bit of a more serious approach to filmmaking in general, to auteurs, Ed's been called that. One of the Ed Wood superfans from this period was Rudolph Gray, who wrote an extensive biography called Nightmare of Ecstasy, The Life and Work of Edward D. Wood Jr. Released in 1992, it was the first time that Ed's personal story had been made public and widely available. And it got noticed. Soon, a biopic about Wood's life was in the works at Columbia Pictures. The director was Tim Burton, famous for films like Edward Scissorhands. Joyce, I just saw this strange guy driving with Peg. Did you get a good look at it? Hi! Scissors! Hello! Like a handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> and Beetlejuice. You gotta help me. What? Look, I want you my colonialian, okay? I want out for good. In order for me to do that, hey, I gotta get married. Hey, these aren't my rules. Come to think of it, I don't have any rules. And Johnny Depp was cast to portray Ed Wood. Mr. Lugosi, why are you buying a car? I'm planning on dying soon. No. Yes, I'm embarking on another bus and truck tour of Dracula, 12 cities in 10 days, if that's conceivable. Do you know that I saw you perform Dracula in Poughkeepsie in 1938? That was a terrible production. Ranfield was a drunk. I thought it was great. You know, you're, you're much scarier in real life than you are in the movie. Thank you. The film was being written by screenwriters Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander. I recently attended a Q&A with Karaszewski at the Secret Movie Club in L.A., where he talked about the process. We didn't want to make Ed Wood a figure of, of laughter. Uh, nothing's worse than when you see a movie about, like, 
bad filmmakers and they're 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 purposely trying to make them bad. Before us, Edward was always meant to be a figure of giggles. It was always like the, the worst filmmaker of all time, the worst film festival of all time. There was all that kind of stuff. Maybe part of it was we had made a film before this called Problem Child, which got the worst reviews of all time. And so we, we, we sort of went into the this a little more sympathetically. We were like, what if you don't make fun of Ed, but celebrate it in a weird way and celebrate his passion and celebrate the fact that he actually was a successful filmmaker. He had a vision, he had a passion, and he got that passion up on the screen. That heartfelt story is what attracted Tim Burton. Tim Burton sort of became curious about this movie when it was just, a, just like literally a three-page treatment. And when we met with him, we literally just said, Ed and Bella, a love story. Because for us, that what it was all about. Much like the friendship between Bella Lugosi and Ed Wood, Tim Burton had a fatherly relationship with Vincent Price. He saw in me a persona of the unreal. Somebody who he knew was a guy named Vincent Price, and that intrigued him. He wanted to identify with somebody who was real but unreal. And so the filmmakers agreed on making that place of empathy central to the film. The movie, titled Ed Wood, premiered in 1994. You control everyone's fate. You're like the puppet master. Uh, so I pull the strings. Yes, you pull the strings. <laughs> pull the strings. I like that. I was able to ask Larry how accurate they thought Depp's portrayal of Ed Wood really was, and if he was actually as eccentric as he seems in the movie. When you talk to the people who worked with Ed Wood, they talk about what a... Uh, just, he would call them up at 1 a.m., uh, plan nine's on, you gotta get up on. He was always this enthusiastic cheerleader. And obviously he had to be that person uh, in order to get these, I think he made something like nine movies, you know, as a director made, because he was just like, you know, he created this whole little family of people who believed in him and he believed in them. And in all fairness, most of these people, no one ever believed in them ever. So I, I don't think we were dishonest in any way whatsoever. It, was he Johnny Depp? I'm not sure he's Johnny Depp. But that being said, uh, one of the best days on the set, this is actually a great story, and, and it kind of relates, kind of doesn't, but um, uh, we were shooting on Hollywood Boulevard, like off of Hollywood Boulevard, the Musso and Frank scene. One of our crew members came over. I wasn't even there. One of the crew members came over to Scott and said, there's this woman over there waiting for the bus, and... She said she was married to Ed. And, and Scott was like, what? What the hell? And she, she was literally carrying, like, bottles of booze and things like that. And it went over, and it was Kathy Wood. And none of us had met Kathy Wood at that point. And so Scott went over and said, like, Kathy? And she's like, yes, yes. And he's like, oh, my God, it's such an honor to meet you. I'm Scott Alexander. wrote this thing. And, you know, like, just you're, it's, it's, it's such an honor to meet you. And she's like, I'd love to meet Johnny, can I meet Johnny? And we're like, oh, and Scott was just like, okay, sure. And so Scott brought her over to the set and knocked on Johnny's trailer. And Scott came in and said like, Kathy Wood is out there. And it was the day of the Musso scene. So Johnny was like in a dress and his makeup was smeared and all these things. And Johnny was like, I can't go out the meter like this she's gonna think we're just like making fun of her husband and then i was like five minutes johnny come to set and he's like oh f you know uh, <laughs> all right and he opens the door and he walks out and kathy sees him and she's like you look just like my eddie <laughs> and it says totally was great and she went home and she came back and she brought edward's wallet would have still had his ID and all these other things, and handed it to Johnny and said, "Like, please keep this and be and and have this in your pocket when you make all the scenes." So even though it was a uh, obviously there's quotation marks all over the things that happened in this movie, his wife recognized it as being like close enough. That is more or less backed up by Bob Blackburn, who has gotten a firsthand account of Ed's personality through Kathy. He was a party kind of guy. He loved having people around when they could afford it. One of their apartments out in North Hollywood had a swimming pool, and Ed would have pool parties all the time. One of my favorite stories that Kathy told me, and this cracks me up, 
Ed was taking a bath one day uh, in their uh, North Hollywood apartment. He hears a knock or ring on the doorbell, and he so he puts a towel and grabs a towel and goes out and opens the door. And there's a fuller brush salesman there. And Ed cracks up, and he goes, hey, I'm right in the middle of a bath. If you want to come in and try and sell me something, I'm willing to listen. And the guy goes, oh, okay, I, I could make a sale here. So Ed goes back into the – sits in the tub, and the guy sits on the john. And they start talking. The guy pulls his brushes out, and Ed grabs one and rubs his back and stuff and says, hey, you want a drink? And the guy goes, yeah, yeah, okay. So he gets a bottle, and they became fast friends. Ed was that kind of guy that I think you would like. The movie was a critical success and is widely regarded as one of Tim Burton's best films. But perhaps more importantly, it redefined Ed Wood for a whole new generation. Here's Bill Shute. The Ed Wood movie was written by two people who are super fans of Ed Wood. That sort of gave him immortality. Now, how do I view the Ed Wood film? I view it very much like the Buddy Holly story was to Buddy Holly. They changed things for dramatic license. Composite characters were created. Was it 100% accurate? No. Was it 60% accurate? Maybe. But it was made by people whose heart was in the right place. And the Buddy Holly story did a great job of getting people interested in Buddy Holly. With Johnny Depp as Ed Wood, with the great Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi, it was a great film. Was it 100% accurate? No. There were things that were invented for the film. There were parts of his life that were not included. But at the end of the day, it was respectful. It got people interested in his work. And if it does that, then I'm glad it exists. And I think so many people got their introduction to Ed Wood through that film. It's still a popular film today. I don't think Ed Wood or anyone could have imagined a Z-grade George Weiss-produced film having the making of that recreated in a multi-million dollar Hollywood movie. There's something mind-blowing about that on some level. I guess you never know what will be rediscovered for future generations. Ed Wood never got to work for Columbia or Allied Artists, but in his death and in his posthumous fame, he is up there now in terms of recognition with the people he admired, who he looked up to that were rungs above him on the ladder. And there's something validating about that. And to me, there's something inspiring that makes me happy and warms my heart about that. To me, this begs the question, was Wood happy with his status as a low-budget filmmaker? In his book, Hollywood Rat Race, he describes some disdain for Hollywood and the movie business. So how did he feel about his own work? What more might he have wanted for himself? Here's Bill Shute, followed by Bob Blackburn. Ed Wood would have loved to have worked for an outfit like American International or Lippert or one of the smaller allied artists. He was always aspiring to that level, and I'm sure he would have been happy to work on that level, to work for Sam Katzman or someone like that. But he was a rung or two below that. He was a Hollywood outsider. He recognized that and realized that. But no, he would have loved to have broken those doors down and been Alfred Hitchcock or been the Orson Welles that everybody says he would have loved to have been. He would have loved to have the power and the ability to make the movies he wanted to make down the road with the actors that he would have loved to have worked with. But he did what he did with what he had. And that, to me, is the victory for Ed Wood, is the fact that, yes, he came to Hollywood to make movies, and gosh darn it, he did make movies, you know? Over the years, the Ed Wood fandom has only grown. And with the help of the internet, various lost works have been discovered. Well, I have a private Ed Wood Facebook group, and we found out recently that Ed had been hired to write a script based on a book, a biography of Frank Leahy, who was the Notre Dame football coach in the 40s. And this guy who was a friend of Frank Leahy's had written a biography and somehow had contacted Ed 
in the mid-70s to write a script based on this. Well, this none of us ever, had ever heard of it. But somebody found it in a library at St. Mary's College. It turned out to be actually an Ed Wood script that nobody had ever heard about. And there's going to be a book about it coming up with the script and some notes about the script by a couple of Edward scholars, I will call them for lack of a better word, but they're people that dive much deeper into Edward than I do. So it's amazing that a lot of things that Ed wrote or produced or did are still coming to light, you know, 30-some plus years, 40 years after his death. Bob Blackburn says his online community is helping to keep the Edward flame alive. I get a lot of these people in there who are just passionate, who call themselves Ed Woodophiles, because they really dig deep into Ed's history, his work, his friendships, his working relationships. They are the ones that discovered this script uh, in the, in this uh, library. They've discovered a couple of novels that went under a different title than what we knew them as. A couple of people in there are working on books about Ed. There's a, a, a gal who's uh, doing a uh, biography that I think focuses a little bit on Ed's spiritual qualities. He's an intriguing person. I mean, from just the human standpoint, he's an intriguing guy. And I think people want to get to know who this person was and why he was and his triumphs and especially his failures, you know, because he had both, some more than others. But what drove him? Where was his creative well that he drew from a lot? Here's a movie maker, author, and we're talking about him today. And really, Wood's legacy goes further than his own career. In a way, he blazed a trail for future artists to come. I think we should celebrate the ingenuity of the Z-grade Poverty Row filmmaker who is like a sleight-of-hand artist who makes you think you're seeing things you don't actually see. Or you see something that represents something larger, and he can't afford to do the something larger. But if you flash it for a second or two, and if you're in the right spirit, it's not a problem. It works. It's ghoulish, or you're afraid of it, or it shocks you and it does what it needs to do, and you move on to the next scene. We need to remember, an Ed Wood film, most of the time, is instantly recognizable. You watch a minute of it, and you know that it was directed by him, or that he wrote it if he did not direct it. So that in itself is a great achievement. How many people can have that said about their work, that it is instantly recognizable? So we need to take our hat off to Ed Wood for creating works that are still entertaining people decades and decades and decades after they were made that originally played on the most marginal circuit, but which are known and loved and which people quote dialogue from today. That is an amazing achievement. And people are writing about him and rediscovering his works and republishing his writings. I hope that in that great film set in the sky or that modest film set in the sky, that Ed Wood is aware of the love and appreciation that his work has. All three of us producers on Ephemeral are huge Ed Wood fans in the most sincere way possible. So after this break, we're going to come back and talk about a few of our favorite films. To finish up our deep dive into Ed Wood, we wanted to step back and have a casual conversation about Wood's films. So joining me now are my fellow ephemeral producers slash hosts, Max and Alex Williams. Trevor, where did you become acquainted with Ed Wood films? In our family, so bad it's good movies are like the number one way that we communicate with each other really? as yeah. human beings. Yeah, like mm-hmm. if I go home for Christmas... The conversation is mostly just about whatever the new riff tracks mm-hmm. stuff is, and we just sit it. We just sit and watch all these bad movies and make fun of them. Um, but wh- where did it come in in your life? 
I like would see his stuff like in my local video store growing up, you know, they had like posters and things like that. So I like knew about like plan nine from outer space, for example, but I never really like watched it. I think like a lot of like 50s, 60s genre movies just like didn't appeal to me growing up necessarily. So it was really the Ed Wood biopic, I think the Tim Burton Mm -hmm. movie in 1994 that like kind of piqued my interest and I think that's like probably true for a lot of people, uh, or at least a lot of people in my age bracket. I'm a millennial and um, I've always loved Tim Burton. So I, I like love and trust anything he does. But that movie especially just like really blew me away the first time I saw it. It was just like so different from anything else he's ever done. You know, it was like mm-hmm. very much grounded in reality. It was like this very kind of funny, lovable story about uh, a director and you know, I would like go on to love similar types of movies like uh, The Disaster Artist, which paints a pretty interesting picture of Tommy Wiseau. Something about those kind of like biopic movies are always just great to me. Um, I love that we can take these people who are typically kind of laughed at in culture and like see like the heart behind them and really like come to appreciate them and understand them as people. So anyways, long story short, I loved that movie. And so uh, from there, I started like actually going back to Ed Wood movies. And at around that same time, I got really into VHS collecting. So I started collecting all these old, you know, VHS tapes of Ed Wood movies and watching them on my CRT and having a great time with them. So I'd say probably like the last five years, I've been really digging into all the old Ed Wood movies and coming to actually really like them. So. Like the disaster artist, um, I I think in the disaster artist over the credits, they actually show side by side, um, like the 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 scenes that they did in the Disaster Artist movie and the right. scenes from from the room, and just to show you how like on the nose they got the costumes and the blocking, the, the blocking, the blocking in quotes, yes. right. <laughs> and everything, and and plan and um, the Ed Wood, the Tim Burton biopic or biopic, if you will, uh, I think is is super on the money too. I mean the down to like you know the cardboard um <laughs> headstones getting yeah. you know tousled and whatever mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it's pretty incredible how good of a job they did if nothing else it just like got you really inspired to like go back and see the original movies i wish they had done like a side by side i bet somebody on youtube's done it just like did that exact same thing you were describing from the disaster artist do you all have a um favorite edward movie Hmm. Well, Trevor, you maybe said that yours is Night of the Ghouls. I really like Night of, of the, the Flying Ghouls. Trumpet. <laughs> yeah, something about the trumpet and the silly seance and the skelly. I love skellies, man. I don't know what it is. Um, if I was going to be honest about which ones I like enjoy unironically, um, I actually think like Glenn or Glenda is like his best actual film. Like if you're judging it on the merits that we normally do for a, like a standard film. I would say Glenn or Glenda. Yeah. I think it um, is like way more sincere. I think the scripting and the subject matter is like a lot more nuanced. You know, it still makes use of a lot of like B roll and other patchworky things, but like whatever, it's like a lot more forgivable in the context. Um, no, I just, the, the use of B roll in that movie is absolutely oh, bizarre. Hate it. Where you, <laughs> It's this, it's this, I agree with you that the narrative has this sincerity about cross-dressing and it actually, Ed Wood actually plays the title character in it, doesn't Mm -hmm. he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So like Bill Shute said something really interesting in the interview tape that kind of took me back that if Ed Wood only made Glenn or Glenda, he would still like have a place in the history Mm -hmm. books. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, a few, a few weird things had to transpire for anyone to be talking about Ed Wood now, I think, but, uh. But I don't know. I was like, okay, I kind of buy that, Bill. Yeah, like Glenn or Glenda is a is a completely unique film. Mm. But the use of B-roll, so it's this <laughs> this cross-dressing narrative about personal identity, and it's a little far, you know, it's a little far-reaching and, and and kind of goes all over the place. But then there's like Bella Lugosi as this random narrator figure with B-roll footage of Buffalo running. Projected behind him, screaming, pull the string! Pull the string! (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't know, I don't know how you forgive something like that. I mean, it's so, it's so brilliantly bizarre. No, but Trevor, I agree with you. I think Glenn or Glenda is definitely his best one. Like, I was watching them, 
And I got to that one like a little bit later on. Like, I think I'd already watched Plan 9 and like Bride of the Monster. I was like, okay, this one's actually like, a little bit better. It blows my mind with like Glenn Glenda, obviously. Like, yeah, like what is Bella Lugosi doing there? Like, what is his purpose in this movie? <laughs> He's just there because he has Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Bride of the Monster is just like really boring. And it's just like kind of like this very stereotypical, yeah. like, 50s horror film type genre with weird yeah yeah, with and then like plan nine is just awful i mean start to finish it's just terrible so you think uh edward got worse and worse and worse as he He, he, he got worse (laughs) he got worse his ability to conceptualize a plot like a plot like a leads to b leads to c yeah and even really to have a story like this is like the overarching tale of like what's happening um is pretty muddled i can't really think of a movie of his where where the story and the plot come through mm-hmm. bride of the monster maybe the most but even that i is very confusing yeah like girl gets like lost slash abducted by a like mad scientist who like creates monsters in his lab mm-hmm. he wants to like keep her and he's like super bitter because he was like ostracized from his community or his country because he wanted to experiment with making atomic people. <laughs> yeah, atomic people, right? And then <laughs> cops come in and save the girl, kill the dude, and leave. I guess it's pretty straightforward. And don't don't forget about all the thirst trapping they do. Like like just slowly, the shirt guy's shirt just keeps getting more and more destroyed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's very intentional. So Max, which one's your favorite then, or oh, least favorite? I would say Glenn or Glenda or. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't count as a short, but the final curtains. It's it's weird. It it is objectively really kind of like creative. There's, it's like all done through narration and stuff. It's it is it's really interesting. It's like, like I I feel like those are ones we could see like Ed Woods like really trying to be creative with his stuff. When it's like, I guess he was trying to be creative with Plan Nine. Just what came out is just, yeah. I uh, I'll probably say those are my two favorite. Yeah. I plan nine hands down is my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite um so bad it's good films or just like you could call it a genre film of the fifties, but it's barely a genre film mm-hmm. because it's so outside the norms of of storytelling. But it's got so many iconic moments to meet. I mean, just the the opening, which he uses in other films too. Criswell. The opening with Criswell in the casket, bizarrely. That that is also what's great is Criswell is a character in um, Night of the Ghouls. Right. Mm-hmm. That is pretty cool. I, I will say that. I'll, I'll give that and his voice that is always echoing. Everyone mm-hmm. else's voice is normal. His is always echoing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got a point though. Plan 9, I think, is like his most like quotable and easily recognizable i think for a reason right like mm. j- the graveyard vampire with tor johnson as the detective given the other detectives instructions that he, that you can barely understand vampire having no words um <laughs> the great flying saucer special effects for me i think the like lack of continuity or consistency between those things like how the one guy describes it as like a cigar shaped ship and then when you actually see it it's like a saucer and it like looks nothing like a cigar i love stuff like that because i will say that when it comes to historical accounts the early ones of ufos were as cigar shaped the saucer came later on so it's like he got his like stories and the plot mixed up i do like that a fist fight on the ship causes it to blow up and catch on fire oh yeah <laughs> yep. there's nothing they're just they're just punching each other and the ship catches on fire it's like and the whole time, it's like, you stupid, stupid people. It's like the aliens are supposed to be so sophisticated, but all you have to do is just get in a fist fight and their shit blows up. So one interesting question, I guess this is like the bigger philosophical question I wanted to kind of broach with you too. You know, in the episodes, we have very differing opinions about like, you know, whether it's like okay to sort of su- suspend disbelief when you're like seeing stuff like that, just so you can like authentically, genuinely enjoy it. Um, or do you kind of like take this more MST3K approach to it? And like, is that the way you should enjoy stuff like Ed Wood? Um, I'm kind of down the middle, frankly. Like there are just times where it's so just like obviously not good that like you can't help but just like laugh at it for that reason. 
Uh, but there, like, there are other times where I like actually just like turn my brain off and like have a fun time watching whatever's on the screen. So I, I don't really have an answer. I'm just curious what you all think. I think the the question is kind of ancient and yeah. potentially unanswerable about um, is aesthetic value objective? Like, what does it mean if something's good or bad? I don't, and I don't really know if there's a way that anything should be enjoyed. I don't think you necessarily need to know anything about Ed Wood. I don't think you... <laughs> I think maybe if you had never seen another movie, it might help to enjoy these. <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I call it so bad that it's good, maybe as a little bit of shorthand, because they, they are so difficult to talk about because they're just so different than anything else that's out mm-hmm. there. But I, I mean, I have... What I would call very sincere enjoyment, maybe not from all of them, hashtag Night of the Ghouls, but like (laughs) Plan 9, y'all, I have watched probably a dozen times. It's I've used little clips from it in lots of ephemeral episodes because it's in the public domain. Um, and it's just got great lines like, in the future, which is where all of us will live someday. In the future. Yeah. Where all of us will live the rest of our lives. Yeah, exactly. I wish I had memorized. There's been parts in my life where I have really had a lot of stuff memorized from from Plan 9. But, yeah, so, like, I I would say the enjoyment that I have watching Plan 9. Oh, and I saw Max, and I think you were the, it was Max and Mom and Dad and I saw it in a theatrical simulcast with the Rift Tracks guys. And it was colorized. And I had never seen it colorized before, and that just took it to the next level. I've probably seen that movie at least a dozen times. I would watch it right now. Mm-hmm. I genuinely enjoy it. Um, and I laugh the whole time. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I don't know. I was thinking about this, like, when we were doing the episode about Herc Harvey. It's like, you know, Carnival Souls, if you just kind of sit there and watch Carnival Souls, it's not a good movie. I mean, well, they made it with, like, $21,000. Uh, there's, like, those scenes where it's, like, the the worst one I think of is, like, She's in the doctor's office and he turns around and it's the cool. And there's just that long pause. And then there's, ah, but it's like, I could say I legitimately love that movie after watching it all those times. It's like, I don't know. It's just like, to Alex's point, it's like, what is good? What is bad? I don't know. I mean, objectively, if you really want to put it up on this whole grade, it's like, yeah, there's not a single Ed Wood film that's even decent, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I, I enjoyed going back and watching a bunch of these, like, including the ones like I, I did not remember how much I enjoyed Glenn or Glenda, despite what that 18 minute long scene. That's just nothing. It's just like almost softcore porn. Yeah. That's about it. I, I mean, I don't know. It, it looked like they needed to get another 18 minutes into the film. But I'm like, yeah, actually, I, I remember this movie being terrible and it is terrible, but it's a lot better than I remember it being. And I enjoyed it and I enjoyed watching all these. And I don't know. That's, that's what matters to me is like, do I actually enjoy it or not? And I, I enjoy Ed Wood stuff all the time, especially the colorized plan nine. So first of all, her Harvey's carnival of souls is a great film and I will not accept any slander about that film. I think it's like a, a low budget masterpiece, frankly, but um, uh, yeah, I guess as far as like the enjoyment thing, I guess like, I never want to feel like I'm part of uh, a group of people who are like punching down or like making fun of something that was just kind of like, you know, incompetence. It would feel wrong to uh, just like crap on somebody just because they don't have like the skills or the money, you know, like if they didn't do a good job at something and they were just like totally pretentious about it, like maybe then I would make fun of them. But, you know, in Ed Wood's case, he was just like, had struggles and he was totally sincere in the thing he was wanting to do. And so, yeah, I guess I'm just saying, I feel like some sense of like guilt at like laughing at the thing he did sometimes. Maybe it's inevitable, but I don't know. I mean, I think there's this interesting phenomenon that there's a gajillion pretty extremely dull, low budget genre movies from the 50s and mm-hmm. 60s sci-fi and lots of others westerns and 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 um crime films and whatever but like there's about a oh, th- I mean there's got to be thousands of other sci-fi movies that this would you know like on paper f- that like a movie like Plan 9 or Bride of the Monster slash Bride of the Atom would f- would fit into and yet you could watch dozens of those without any of them standing out to you Probably maybe an element here or there. Edward's stuff stands out 
for whatever reason, it's just so it's so very different than any than anybody else's work. Yeah, I know. It's just like there are plenty of movies that are just as bad as and we don't Bride of the Monster. Yeah. Like, you know, there are a ton of movies like that, but that one does stand out. It's something about Ed Wood's style. It's, it, I don't know. It's like how genuine you can tell the people are, you know, you can tell they're trying. You tell Tor Johnson's actually really trying to deliver those lines in Plan 9. It's just nobody can understand it. And I don't know. It's like, you know, there, there, you, can, you can see a passion in it and stuff that, yeah, you know, there's, there's a good level of respect that I have. Like, you know, they're badly made movies, but they, they tried really hard. They are. I mean, the craft of filmmaking in them is extremely low. So low. The lighting, the blocking, the set design, the acting, the script. The writing, yeah, the craft is very the craft. The craft is doesn't um, demonstrate a whole lot of dexterity. So though, I mean, I think there's like a certain charm to that, and maybe that's just because I grew up as like a a '90s kid in video stores, and there was just like a certain sort of like aesthetic charm. I think to like low budget filmmaking, you know, it was like never good, but there was this kind of like fun culture around it, right? Like the kind of sillier a like uh, you know videotape cover or poster was like the more compelled I felt to be like, hell yeah, I want to grab this, you know? Um, and like, even today, this kind of like retro culture that kind of glamorizes that sort of like eighties low budget thing is like huge right now. And I think it's huge for a reason, you know, I think, you know, even if it doesn't measure up to like the quality of proper filmmaking, it stands on its own as like its own sort of valuable genre, I think. But Well, it's where something like, um, this is maybe a, dated reference in a different way, but something like the Grindhouse, the Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino double feature kind of misses the mark for me because like I I appreciate and I kind of, I don't know, empathize with with the love letter to these maybe like hokier tropes of of older B movies, but it's it's just like a little insincere. Ah, maybe that's the wrong word. It's, it's just like a, a, maybe a little too... Uh, much polish, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, the polish to make it look bad uh, doesn't come through in the same way that you know that it doesn't in, in the original. Yeah, you, that's another like topic. I think is this thing about like camp. You know, camp is usually like unintentionally being bad, usually as a result of being low budget, and you can't like fake camp, right? Like you can't fake low budget. I don't know, and some people do that. Like I think. Um, you know, the certain things like Sharknado or whatever, like attempt to be bad on purpose. And it just comes off being cringy to me at mm-hmm. least. Like it just has to be that authentically, right? It has to be like a happy mistake or it's not real or it doesn't count, you know? I think Catherine Coldiron's point, um, she brings up Sharknado. And it really resonated with me too, that like the overall impression that you get from a film like that is, is, is a cynicism. And the impression that you get from an Ed Wood movie is kind of like a muddled, hopeless optimism. Yeah. yeah. And I guess I, I opt for the latter. The latter seems like a more of a good time to me, like a better date, a better night in. Yeah, maybe on that note then, um, I don't know, what are, you, what are you guys' like favorite things about watching an Ed Wood movie? The end. Paul Mark Paul Marco, he plays the same character over and over again. Kelton, he's like the real like, oh geez, why do I gotta go out to the cemetery again? I love I love too. It's the same character. It's like Bride of the Monster, Plan Nine, and Night of the Ghouls. It's the exact yeah. same character. He keeps referencing things that's happened in the previous movies <laughs> and stuff. He's got a really good scene actually in in um Night of the Ghouls. They give him really- they give him a little bit in Night of the Ghouls. Like he actually has some character in that one. Yeah, I think uh, to echo, I think my favorite thing is just the the characters that he is able to bring on. I think there's just so many memorable people. I mean, I love Criswell for how cheesy he is. You know, I love Paul Marco for how silly he is. Lobo. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, Tor Johnson for just being like absolutely unhinged all the time. I don't think he ever says, well, no, I, I was going to say, I don't think he ever says any actual words in any Ed Wood movie, but there's like a short period in Plan 9 where he's like a cop at the beginning right. and says a couple lines very badly. Uh, <laughs> but otherwise, like, I love the, that he's just like constantly screaming. Like, Ed Wood's screen direction was just like, go out there and grunt and like slap them and, you know, have a good time. And, as a result, I have a good time. So uh. I, I I rewatched the uh, Rift Tracks Plan Nine from Outer Space, 
And it's just like you see every time he hits somebody in that movie, it's just like he pats them. Yeah, yeah. He's just like open-handed, like <laughs> ooh, ooh. I love the Bela Lugosi and all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just love Bela Lugosi, even his little bit in Plan Nine, and then he's re- when he's replaced by the person that is like a foot taller than him, covering their face. Yeah, yeah. I love that they like made a a point to highlight that in the Edward Tim Burton movie, right? Oh yeah, like he just like meets the guy in the diner. He's like. You look just like him. He like holds the <laughs> the thing up to cover his mouth. I agree. I think uh, Bella Lugosi is another one of those characters who just like really makes it happen. I know you were talking shit about the pull the strings stuff in Glenn or Glenda, but I can't help. No, but love it's it. great. It's a great scene. It's one that stands out in my head. You just like you you sit and you say, "What did he? How did this end up in this movie? Why are why are these the same film?" Mm-hmm. And it's one of the great mysteries. <laughs> one of the great mysteries that Ed Wood left behind unanswered. I will say another thing that I really do love is it's kind of like the same cast of actors through and through on all the films. Cause it, it kind of gives you that feel like it was like, you know, like friends and f- friends making films together and stuff. Cause it's like obviously you got like Tor Johnson and Paul Marco, but like, uh, you got like Duke Moore is in a bunch of them and stuff. It's just like, it, I, I like that whole, like, they were all a team together making these things and doing the best they could. And unfortunately the best they could was plan nine from outer space. I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm glad it happened exactly the way it did. Frankly. I do. I do wish that Ed had, I don't, I don't know what more of a chance looks like. Cause he got to make like nine films or something, but it, he had such a sad ending to his life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. I think a, a couple people said in the episodes, that uh you know he probably would have had like a really big like cult revival potentially like a second wind of a career right in the like 80s 90s had he been alive um and i see that as being very true i think people would have absolutely loved some new ed wood stuff in the 80s you know i mean there according to imdb at least there is an ed wood film coming uh grave robbers from outer space which is you the know original very- cut of Plan Plan 9, yeah. But, like, there's also, like, the Forsaken Westerns, Crossroad of Avenger, which was that series he had worked on for, like, they made a, uh, I don't know, an episode out of it in 2017. So, I, you know, there's still people out there trying to, like, you know, I guess preserve it. I mean, I don't know how real all this stuff is, but he's giving credit as a writer on a lot of the stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Ed's interesting from a point of view of lost media, for sure. I I, I would not be surprised if there are tons and tons of movies and scripts and things like sitting in warehouses that we don't know about that are going to like come to light in upcoming years, you know, especially with like the internet and like the huge like Ed Wood community online. I would be very surprised if those things don't start surfacing and getting funded somehow or whatever. So last question then. All right. The show's called Ephemeral. Do you guys own any Edward Ephemera? I feel like we probably have Plan 9 on VHS. I Oh, I, I think we do, yeah. I mean, by we, I mean the Williams family. My father has a closet full of VHS tapes, and I, mm. and I think probably there's a Plan 9 VHS. I mean, I don't think he has anything else other than that. I mean, I don't think he had Bride of the Monster and definitely don't wouldn't have Glenn or Glenda. Uh, yeah, I've got some some VHS tapes over there. I think I've got Plan 9, Bride of the Monster, Glenn or Glenda, and I think I actually have the Tim Burton movie on VHS as well. But. Oh, so do we. Mm-hmm. You know, the biopic, all of these were just like regular watching. for Like in our family, we would watch stuff like The Blob and like uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And like these are just like movies that we would just watch regularly as a family. And... Uh, Edward, especially Plan 9, but the other Edward films too. And the Edward biopic were all films that we watched a lot as a family. And we'd sit around, you know, at the dinner table, I could say something like, Eddie, make me goulash. <laughs> but I don't know how to make goulash, Bella. <laughs> and my, fa- my favorite one from that movie, and Martin Landau, I think we won the Oscar for it, and he sure did deserve it because he did such a good job. He brought yeah, so much humanity, but role. also so much creepiness to that role um, and camp. Is what he's sitting there looking at the TV, trying to command the TV and doing this weird thing with his hand. And Johnny Depp as Edward is like, My God, Bella, how do you do that? He's like, You have to be double jointed and Hungarian. <laughs> My favorite, of course, is Karloff, sidekick. F you! <laughs> Karloff is a 
cocksucker. <laughs> yeah, anytime Bella Lugosi's character like cusses or, or said some, something derogatory about someone else, it's just gold. This episode of Ephemeral was written and produced by Trevor Young with producers Max and Alex Williams. Bill Shute is a writer and professor of English at San Antonio College. He also wrote the introduction for the new book of posthumously released essays by Ed Wood, When the Topic is Sex. Bob Blackburn is a family friend of the Woods who edited and compiled the stories for When the Topic is Sex, which you can find on Bear Manor Media's website, or wherever books are sold. And Catherine Coldiron is author of the book Plan 9 from Outer Space. See more of her work at kcoldiron.com. You also heard from screenwriter Larry Karaszewski, who co-wrote the 1994 film Ed Wood. Big thanks to The Secret Movie Club in Los Angeles for hosting this Q&A and letting us record. You can check out their calendar at secretmovieclub.com. How do you feel about Ed Wood? Love him? Hate him? Tell us why. On social media, we're at Ephemeral Show. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 